0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech, and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. My conversation today is with Russ Rosenband, principal of The Lot Next Door. Russ is an advisor and investor in various parts of the complex ecosystem around food delivery, ghost kitchens, and retail real estate. I like Russ's perspectives on these issues because he's able to provide the lens that local operators and small businesses are considering and using to figure out how to incorporate these new innovations into their businesses. Our discussion today focuses on the future of food retail for local eateries and the big players looking to cash in on the market opportunities that tech is providing the strategies behind integrating new models like ghost kitchens and delivery platforms into retail operations, and what tech stacks are allowing the small operators to integrate more technology. I hope you enjoy. Let's dive in. Maybe just to kick off, you can maybe talk a little bit about what is ghost kitchens at a high level? What's this Wild West space we're seeing?
1: Yeah, sure. I think ghost kitchens are definitely the flavor of the year, if you will. I've sucked up a bunch of headlines tons of capital from investors, restaurant operators, landlords, et cetera. I think when everyone's talking about ghost kitchens, what they're really seeing is a consumer behavioral trend, continued trend towards food delivery, and it's how consumers are accessing hot food. Pre-COVID, your kind of on-premise experience was really defined by how you felt when you entered the store, how the employees treated you, what the kind of surroundings felt. Was there graffiti on the wall? Was it cashless payments? Like How did you feel when you went through the queue? Now. With over 50% of all stores being online, people's consumer experience are now defined by online ordering experience.
0: I was curious, something in the way you just described that, what that made me think of, right, is how the front side of retail is decreasing importance and more of this logistics backside operational space is just way more important.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about how we got here. Pre-COVID retail rents had already run up to an insurmountable level. Where retailers were already starting to think about, do I need to pay 30, 40,000 a month and spend 2-3 million dollars to fit out a retail store on Broadway? They were seeing the majority of their sales coming from online avenues, and when someone orders directly through your platform, you know where they are, who they are, what time they're ordering. So companies like Sweetgreen and Wendy's and Burger King, they're all of a sudden saying to themselves, why do I need to go as I said, spend $2, $3 million on a 3,000-foot build-out on 79th Street in Columbus when I know all I need is a 300-square-foot kitchen with a flat-top grill to cook my burgers. Over the last 12 months or so, restaurateurs and savvy hospitality groups have said, wait a minute, I'm more in the e-commerce business than I am in the brick-and-mortar restaurant, and I can reach more consumers quicker and more efficiently by opening up what's called ghost kitchens or dark kitchens yep. without all the capital expense and legal kind of brain damage necessary with opening up a brand new restaurant. Now what that's done is it's separated the haves from the have not, right? Because the national brands that have the IP, right? They have brand recognition, they're well capitalized. So that means they have the capital to sustain this drop in sales. It also means they have the capital to invest in technology. When you have the confluence of those three things, which is a strong balance sheet and investment in technology and national brand recognition, you can afford to weather the storm and have your eyes set on the future. Whereas a lot of these independent mom and pop restaurants that have already gone out of business and will only continue to go out of business, they're just trying to figure out how to survive and put food on their family's Mm -hmm. tables, let alone investing in the necessary technology to basically set their restaurant up for future success. So we're seeing this real kind of bifurcation where the well-capitalized, well-known restaurants are able to survive and actually innovate. And the mom and pops are almost getting left behind, which is which is a real shame and why we all need to be supporting local and trying to order direct from the restaurants whenever possible
0: that gets a lot of points more broadly speaking for why this space is super exciting i was looking and researching i think like the first food delivery on over the internet was done in like 1995 it was in the bay area for a company called waiter.com and amazon sold its first book like a year before over the internet and it, i don't know it just amazed me that it took a year later for food to get online and move via the internet because it's essential to everything that we do whereas mm-hmm. like books it's a little bit more. Um, uh, every once in a while, I'll go get a book online. But I'm curious, and I think that point of the haves and have nots and like really the big brands. I'm curious. So if you're a big restaurant brand, a Sweet Green or a Wendy's, a Savvy, you're digitizing, you're revamping your space, how are you figuring out this kind of ghost kitchen, dark kitchen? Are you working with a third party operator? Are you tasking your head of real estate? Hey, this is like, Something we're figuring out. Like, what's that process look like? And I, maybe at the same time, what's that process look like for a small and pop, mom and pop shop that's trying to figure it out? How's it go?
1: Good question. The quick answer is move fast and break things and do everything. I can tell you, Sweet Green had its real estate brokers in the market looking for spaces 18 months ago. We're talking 250 to 300 square foot pickup outposts, but they were also looking at working with some of the large ghost kitchen operators around the country. The big restaurant groups that have the capital to experiment, they are doing absolutely everything because they can afford to experiment. The mom and pops, God bless them. They are trying everything too, albeit at a lower rate of kind of speed, right? Because it takes them that much longer to roll things out. They don't have as much buying power when working with their suppliers or their technology providers. So I think for mom and pop restaurants, it's much more about being boots on the ground and trying to create the most hospitable experience on premise. And then putting little flyers in delivery bags that say, please call us and order direct. But for the bigger restaurant chains, this is much more of like an invest and an innovate approach where they're rolling out new technology. They're hiring heads of technology and CTOs that before never had a place in the restaurant industry. And so they're, they're fully creating teams around this problem. And I don't think anybody's really cracked the code yet. You've got companies like Popeye's Chicken signing deals with Reef Kitchens to roll out nationally. So you've got this really interesting kind of intersection between established long-term restaurant business models, like the Dardens of the world and the Popeyes, et cetera, that are now trying to leverage this innovation that's coming from guys like Travis Kalanick, Reef Kitchen, Zool, et cetera. And they're saying, wait a minute, how can I use these newcomers to the market as ways to bring my restaurant brand into the 21st century and really future-proof my model? So it's really interesting to see a lot of these restaurateurs work with third-party ghost kitchen operators to see if that might be an answer to the success of their business long-term.
0: Yeah, no. And just a little bit of context, and I talked about this in last week's newsletter, but and one of the big reasons why that kind of, I think, exemplifies why the space is so exciting. Reef, you just talked about, it was like the biggest prop tech VC deal of 2020. It's one of many of the big deals coming out around this space. And I think what Reef is doing is super interesting in their approach, and it seems a little bit different. And I know some people who are actually on more of the urbanism side who really actually like a lot of what Reef's doing because it's using parking spaces and some of those microspaces more mm-hmm. effectively. So I think that's one piece, obviously. Travis Kalanick, former CEO of Uber, is always... I've read a lot of stories. I think like a lot of people who read urban tech are pretty up to date on what this opportunity is, but right, like this ghost kitchens, dark kitchens, city storage, logistics space, an opportunity that every story I see, he seems to think is bigger than Uber. He seems to think it's his big one or his next big one, at least. So I'm curious, right? Like He's been working on this for, I think, two, three years now. What do you think seeing someone like that coming from a company like Uber, which obviously has, it's not directly in the space side of things, but logistics, operations, data aggregation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. To his credit, he's been playing off inside information for the longest time because he creates these data streams that only he himself can profit from. So remember, he had all the data around Uber before anybody else did. So when he started seeing the kind of traction that Uber Eats was getting and how many people were ordering and what they were ordering and to which which parts of the country, he obviously saw this accelerating trend towards off-premise food delivery before any of them. So he's clearly taking a massive real estate bet, granted with other people's money, that this is going to be the highest and best use for commercial properties throughout urban cores in the United States. What I love about Reef's model, because I come from the commercial real estate development world, Reef is operating with a highly capital efficient model because they're bringing module trailers onto existing parking lots. And that means they can retrofit trailers quickly. They can move trailers quickly. It can be a COVID testing center one day and then the next day be cooking burgers out of the yeah. same parking lot just by wheeling off. What Travis is doing while well, he's acquiring some very prime real estate in exciting markets like Baltimore and Denver and
0: LA is huge. All, yeah.
1: <laughs> all over California. He's juicing his land basis. He, he is sinking so much money into these facilities to make them purpose-built ghost kitchens. One thing I've learned that I want a lot of people to understand about the ghost kitchen space is as sexy as it is, they're really expensive to build out. And since no one really has solved the virtual brand operating game just yet, you can't just buy one of these warehouses and start cooking food in them tomorrow. You have to file plans. It takes 12 to 18 months to build. You then have to market yourself. And what happens if 80 to 90 percent of these virtual brands churn? You've now bought a you know a cheap warehouse in an up and coming warehouse district of Virginia, say. You've sunk three, four, five million dollars into this abandoned warehouse with the hope of making it this exciting multi-vendor virtual food hall. And what happens if all the brands you put in there fail? All of a sudden, you're sitting with an overbuilt warehouse with 15 sub kitchens and no one to use them. So I think what Reef and Travis are both betting on is the future of food delivery. But Reef is able to stay a little bit more nimble because they have a modular construction mm-hmm. path, whereas Travis is sinking a lot of hard construction dollars into existing facilities.
0: That's super interesting, especially as a space that's so real estate focused, like the investment piece and how people are capitalizing on the asset class itself and the opportunity there, right? So much of this, and I can't help but think about WeWork and the commercial side of it and all that when we were started buying spaces versus just leasing them that whole operating nimbleness and peace comes into it all especially as you scale super hard i think i have an idea but could you maybe describe it like what does a purpose-built ghost kitchen look like how many square feet is it I, i get the sense it's like around 300 400 square feet per brand restaurant operator and there's usually It varies in size, but I've seen some that are like, there's about 25, 26 different operators in some of the spaces or so. If maybe you could talk a little bit about what these look like.
1: Yeah, I've seen them as small as 5,000 feet with 10 or 11 kitchens and as big as 30 or 40,000 feet with 40 to 60 kitchens. What gets really interesting, though, is when you start talking about the emergence of virtual and how all of a sudden you could feasibly have ten restaurant brands operating out of a single kitchen, which means you now take one of those five thousand foot facilities with ten kitchens, and those ten kitchens can now produce menus for a hundred brands. So once you figure out the virtual operating model, all you have to do is adjust the menu and adjust the cooking protocols to provide more cuisine types, if you will, to the public. So powerful about the data aggregation that all these companies are getting, is if they know that John is in L.A. and he's always trying to order Vietnamese and he can't get it. Well, a mom and pop operator like myself isn't going to know, oh, let me open up a Vietnamese restaurant near John in L.A. But DoorDash or Travis Kalanick can say, you know what, I just bought that warehouse in West Hollywood near where John lives. I know John is trying to order Vietnamese and can't. Let me open up John's Vietnamese down the street. And all of a sudden he's paired what you're looking for with what he can provide you with. So the data is so powerful when you think about how quick these guys that are well-capitalized can get to market and really bring the cuisines that they know the local, the local consumer is looking for. And it's not any different than traditional e-commerce, right? Retail is going through this whole transition where stores are looking to become experiential flagships. And then just have drop ship locations where they can just ship items directly to your door. Restaurants are no different. If they can be in one or two flagship locations where I now have a very positive affiliation with this brand because I ate there in Nashville and I tried their barbecue. Holy smokes. Now it pops up on Uber Eats when I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I'm going to have that same positive affiliation and I can order from that ghost kitchen without ever having to go to the brick and mortar establishment. So I think you're gonna see restaurant groups operating like more traditional retailers have started to in the e-commerce space. And again, why you're gonna see a lot of independent restaurants go out of business because so they don't have the wherewithal, the savviness or the capital to invest in innovation and be able to bring the consumer what they need when they need it.
0: No, and definitely a lot there. I think the data stuff is definitely one part for the conversation. and I definitely wanna to get to, but I think that kind of last second piece that you talked about like brands and this is a little anecdotal but like i see it all the time in la i mean i think la is one of those hot markets if there is like a hot kind of restaurant in new orleans nashville secondary market la it's one of those places that makes a lot of sense for a brand to kind of come to next because i see it a lot with uh, a lot of southern food actually a lot of like restaurants and brands that are in nashville like hot chicken and stuff it's going crazy in los angeles over the last year, I talked to some of my friends who've been here for a few years, and they say that it's just blown up. And mm-hmm. some of them I know are only like virtual brands operating, like they have no physical brick and mortar. So that, that it just makes me think about because I, I order a lot of food on delivery apps. So I like love food. And so I'm always like looking whenever there's a connection between all that. But I think the data point you're talking about, and it's the story of tech of the last 20 years data is the new oil, all of that stuff. Everyone who reads Urban Tech probably is sick and tired of hearing about it. But I think for this space, and particularly as physical space gets more intertwined with the digital side, it's going to be even more important going forward. So I'd love maybe if you just talk a little bit about what that looks like. What is the dagger? What are the tools? Is it just the front side of what demand is looking like on cuisine type, location, neighborhood? How are these insights being formed?
1: I think it's a really, it's an interesting cycle because from the earliest onset, the importance is getting customer eyeballs and acquiring customer data and information so you can retarget them and sell them whatever the heck it is that they want to buy. So before we dig into the data and figure out what kind of food they want, these companies are acquiring so many emails, so many, so many data points on individual customers that they can repackage and retarget those customers with any one of a million different products, right? Yeah. Take Reef Kitchens, for example. I mentioned that they have the COVID testing centers. They also have a lot of ghost kitchens. What happens if they start popping up dropship retail locations for Bonobos and Walmart to send their retail clothes to a parking lot in Pittsburgh? That's gonna be a data point. They can now take that person that picked up their jeans at the Reef Kitchen trailer. They can now send them an advertisement for a free COVID test and they can retarget them and say, try our new burgers from Mr. Beast virtual burger brand. So really the, the, the power here is in the customer data and people are so quick to get mad at seamless for charging the 20 to 30% so the restaurants can't make any money. The bigger issue here is that Seamless is keeping that customer data and not giving it back to the restaurant. So if I'm a small business owner, or if I'm any business owner, I'm okay with low or even zero margin business if it means I'm acquiring a customer into my ecosystem, right? When you talk about customer acquisition costs and e-commerce, it's okay to spend money on acquiring customers if they're truly your customer. But to, be, but to be engaging in zero or even negative margin business by having people order through Grubhub, Caviar, et cetera, and then not even maintaining that customer's data, they are literally losing money without any chance of getting it back. So I wanted to make sure I made that point because I think the large companies can use this data to then repackage it and create new brands. But the real criminal enterprise here, as I see it, is these poor restaurants that just want to move product and generate sales. They're not even generating new customers. They're literally generating sales for the sake of sales and have no ability to truly create a community and build a long-term business. So the fact that Grubhub and DoorDash can now create virtual brands based on what customers are looking for in the market, that's just like the nail in the coffin to me. Not only have they taken all the customers that wanted to shop from these local brands, they've turned them into their own customers, and then they force-fed them whatever it is that they want to sell them. So long story short, it starts with acquiring the customer data because there are these very powerful marketplaces that they sell to restaurants as like a platform to be found. But then they keep that data, harvest it and repackage it to sell your customers what they want you to buy from them instead of from the restaurant. And that's that's the uh, the dangerous cycle that we're in here with, with these massive marketplaces that a lot of restaurants need to be on to survive today.
0: No, and. I think all of those themes, like marketplaces, like it's the same stuff that's really harming smaller brands on Amazon, e commerce, it's already like Airbnb and these marketplaces for space. Anytime there's a marketplace and scale, it seems like these are the inevitable problems that crop up into all of it.
1: I'll also add to that. So I, I recently invested in a virtual brand, which we can talk about in a little yeah. bit. So I wanted to see what DoorDash was talking about. I got an email saying 0% commissions if you sign up today. I said, you know what? Screw it. Let me apply. Let me just download whatever marketing brochure they want me to look at. Within 30 seconds of downloading the marketing brochure, I got a phone call from a sales rep in California. I said, I can't chat right now. Try me next week. Before that sales rep had a chance to call me the next week, I had already been part of a drip campaign from some automated email server from DoorDash where I've gotten An email every single day saying, Hey Russ, are you still there? Hey Russ, are you interested in this offer? So I'm already in this spin cycle now where DoorDash says, okay, we don't know what Russ does for a living, but we know we wanted to download our social media marketing pamphlet for restaurants. We are going to hit him at every single turn to see if we can get him into our ecosystem because whether or not my business survives, if I have even seven customers that care what I'm up to, DoorDash is going to acquire those seven customers eventually. So these companies have so much money and have invested so much in the sales and marketing funnel that the minute you show a little bit of interest, they're thinking, this guy's customers, I want to be mine, and we're going to get him on our platform by any means necessary. And it's a really dangerous cycle that I'm not really sure uh, how to break at this point.
0: I think that's why... why the space is so exciting, why it's so scary. Because when you think about the incumbents and the amount of capital that it takes to run customer acquisition campaigns at that level, local businesses don't have a shot, right? Like to run digital ads, targeted ads, even well venture backed D2C brands don't have the capital to really do sophisticated Facebook targeting and stuff like that, where it's Doordash is a public company it just raised billions of dollars and it has the savviness the scale to immediately do exactly what you're saying and i think that's super interesting and not one direction i had quite thought about it how they're really incentivizing this next kind of generation of virtual brands to have i'd love what it's a dumplings i've seen uh, some hits in eater and some of the big uh, food blogs.
1: yeah so i recently invested in a uh, virtual brand called city dumpling and it's a really interesting concept where we bring in the best dumplings from around New York City and make them available to the masses in a delivery only capacity. It's been a really interesting experience for me to see under the hood of what these virtual brands are up to because they have to operate like an e-commerce business to succeed. In the same way that Warby Parker said, we'll send you five glass when they first started, we'll send you five glasses. No shipping costs, try them all on and send them back for free, and we'll let you keep the ones you like. The same way, all these direct to consumer brands give you free stuff to get you in their ecosystem. A lot of these virtual brands are gonna have to do the same thing to acquire customers.
0: Yeah. So, are you, I'm curious, like what that, when you're operating, it's completely virtual, right? And I was checking it out. It seems like Instagram, social media for customer acquisition is like big places. Like, how do people find you? Is it SEO?
1: So it's something that we're going through right now. It's a very young company, but we are truly thinking through an omni-channel marketing um, strategy to hit people at different points of the sales cycle. Whether it's talking about how we help local restaurants generate more revenue through restaurant fulfillment partnerships on LinkedIn. Whether it's working with influencers on TikTok, because these dumplings, in in addition to just tasting incredible, they also are beautiful looking and fun to cook. Or if it's something like food porn on Instagram, we have to think about this, as I've said now a few times, like a true direct-to-consumer retail business. Because if someone wants to buy a city dumpling hat, I'll gladly sell them a hat because it means they're a customer for life and they're going to want to get dumplings a few times a month. So how do we come up with an omni-channel marketing strategy to expand our customer reach and really engage with customers at different parts of the sales lifecycle? And I'll be honest, we have no idea yet. We're so early in the process. All I do know, and we'll have to get you some dumplings out in LA soon. Yes, please. The dumplings taste incredible, and we do not want to sacrifice quality for anything. So, first and foremost is quality and the delivery experience to the consumer. Once we've nailed that down, how do we then package the marketing experience so that people are like, I got to try these things because they look so damn tasty?
0: The part that seems like everyone's figuring it out and like why like people who are starting these new brands and why like mr beast launching that story like took off what was it like two weeks ago and was like the biggest story for 24 Mm -hmm. hours and stuff and Mm -hmm. like people with the built-in audiences obviously have edge in the game and can automatically start selling and that's like the story of e-commerce right now among influencers and all of that. But how intimidating is it when you're launching? And I know you're doing it a lot of just to learn more about the space and the obstacles and pieces. It's a big learning experience. But when you're looking up and seeing the Mr. Beast of the world or different companies like Cloud Kitchens launching, like how intimidated are you? I'd love just to hear a little bit more about that.
1: I see it as a huge opportunity. Yeah. Because no matter how much these companies are raising, I know that no one's got a clue Uh, what's maybe very few people do, okay? I'm sure there are people that are way smarter and richer than I am that can see the future. But by and large, 99% of the people that are in this space wake up every day trying to figure out where this industry is going. And so I think there's massive value in eyeballs. And so when someone like Mr. Beast launches 300 virtual restaurants seemingly overnight, I'll be honest, I went and watched like ten of his videos on YouTube because I was so interested and intrigued about who this guy is. So I'm not so intimidated as I am excited and interested to just learn how other people are doing it. And this guy, Mr. Beast, if you don't know about him, like he's spending multiple millions of dollars to produce some of these YouTube videos where he's buying houses for people, he's handing people cash. The whole thing is completely absurd to me. But he's got so many eyeballs and you know, I just turned 32 weeks ago and maybe I missed it, but there's a ton of money in this stuff. And there's a ton of interest in what this guy is putting out. I think about this all the time with TikTok, where I know that people are getting hits and selling things and building their brand on TikTok. I don't have the app. Do I get the app? Do I start following people? Can you even follow people on TikTok? I don't know. But I know that like, it's getting so much attention right now. It's information overload. It's like drinking from a fire hose. But the only way for me to really get hands on with this stuff was to align myself with a virtual brand that I believe in. And so I think it's hard to do this stuff by reading headlines. You really got to be in boots on the ground, talking to people, making mistakes, and just like going with the flow and building the airplane while you're on the runway. Otherwise, you're just you're reading what everyone else is reading. And by that point, it's too late.
0: One, your point on TikTok, honestly, is like my life. I'm 25, and honestly, I don't have TikTok. I see all the best stuff on Instagram and Twitter. I don't want to get too into TikTok because like, my life will go away. <laughs> honestly, I know it'll be like that, but that's my eternal struggle. But I think all this piece about having audience, the future of commerce, influencers, right? Like it seems like everyone, Gen Z, everyone who's on TikTok is an influencer, quote unquote, content creator. It's trying to figure out this new world where commerce and building a business is possible. And I think when I see all these headlines about ghost kitchens and stuff and why I really wanted to talk to you, it's the excitement of the space, like every other tech thing. It's the investment dollars going into it, the rounds being raised, Travis Kalanick's involved, everyone's just getting excited, ambition, aspirations and all that. But hearing your perspective, and I like how you're trying to learn really from like the small side and trying to figure out you're thinking about the big stuff, but also you're getting down in the weeds. So if you're launching a virtual brand and there's a million different tech stacks and tools available to make it happen, you maybe walk me through a little bit and I don't want you to share the secret sauce too much, but what's that process look like? Are you getting a square machine? Are you getting a social media design Like I want to start a virtual brand restaurant tomorrow for hamburgers. How might I do it?
1: The first, thing I'd ask you, John, is why you yeah. love burgers? Like, what's the what's the angle? And the reason I say that is because it's so easy now to just launch a new virtual brand on any one of a million platforms. Mm-hmm. Without a why, it's going to be very difficult to engage a customer base that's actually going to give a shit. The first thing I would do before building a virtual brand is say, what What's my goal here? Is it just that I want to scale a small business and sell it for a lot of money? If so dealing in prepared food and restaurants is probably not the business i would go into. So you've got to really have a reason why you want to get your feet wet in this whole virtual restaurant world because it's messy. Yeah. We talked about Amazon and selling books. Once a book's printed, it sits on a shelf and it never goes bad. Once you cook dumplings, within 15 minutes they're starting to get cold and if they get to the consumer cold, they're never ordering from you again. So I'd first caution anybody who's thinking about getting into the space with understanding you are in the restaurant business and it is a really difficult business to succeed in. Once you decide you want to sling burgers for a living on a virtual restaurant brand, then you have to think about how you're going to be accepting payments and selling your product. A very low cost way to get your product to consumers is through third party platforms like your Grubhub and Seamless, your Uber Eats, your Caviar, et cetera. The issue with that, as we've talked about already, is not only are they going to take most of your margin, but they're also going to keep most of your customers. And therefore, what business are you really in? So the first thing I would think about is how are you going to create a true direct to consumer native ordering platform? right? How are you going to create a sales funnel where if John sees our brand on Instagram and he says, order now, how can I ensure that I'm going to keep John's information so I can keep John in the loop? on all the future products or merchandise or locations that we're opening up. And so when you're thinking about what your POS system is gonna be to start your virtual brand, there's a few out there that are leading the pack right now. We've chosen with City Dumpling to go with Toast, which I think is the industry leader and probably the one that wins long-term for restaurants. Interesting. Although I know a lot of restaurant brands that use Square, obviously Micros has been a- around since the beginning of time. I think you really can't go wrong with any of them, frankly. And one of my big predictions for 2021 is 2021 is the year that these big POS companies invest heavily in online ordering through both developing in-house in addition to acquisition of smaller companies. And so I think if I'm starting a virtual brand, first thing I'm doing is locking down my direct ordering platform, and then I'm making sure I get all my operations in order so I know that consumers are getting hot food cooked and delivered of the highest quality. You've got to make your customers happy. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how cool your brand looks or how good the food pictures look if it doesn't taste right.
0: That's awesome. I think that helped me for uh, when I am eventually ready to launch my hamburger kitchen. <laughs> uh, I'll definitely have a place to start. I'm curious, right? Because Toast is definitely one I'm watching out, and it definitely seems like they've found their niche. And like the food retail square is like a tech company I'm forever obsessed with just because I think mm-hmm. like I like how they operate. And I think they're really smart in a lot of different ways. I think a lot about Shopify and what they've been doing and this whole narrative about arming the rebels of commerce. And it seems like there's a lot of parallels. But do you see in 2021, one of these, and maybe it is Toast or one of them, like really trying to be this brand of Quote unquote, arming the rebels, arming the mom and pop stores for ghost kitchens, point of service, and helping them fight the big bad brands of sweet green, chipotle, and that have just had head start on it all?
1: I think it's toast. I yeah. think Squ- Square has obviously grown incredibly quickly and they mm-hmm. have also dominated retail, mm-hmm. right? Like mom and pop, yep. traditional Main Street retail. I think Toast, from the people I've spoken to over there, they really do care about making it easy for the restaurants to onboard and operate. Mm -hmm. You've seen some newcomers into the online ordering world, not the POS world, such as Lunchbox and GoParrot, who are basically pretty online ordering overlays that you can integrate with your POS. So if I already have Toast or I already have Square, but it just looks like a very plain kind of black and white online ordering platform that Toast provides which, by the way, they only rolled out as a result of COVID, I can partner with a Lunchbox or a GoParrot, integrate with my Toast POS system, and have a beautiful, fully customized online ordering platform with loyalty and rewards and all these other kind of perks that you don't get through the traditional kind of native delivery solution through Toast. I do think because of how much Toast has raised and how big Square has gotten and Micros, a lot of these players, I think, will acquire these smaller online ordering platforms like a lunchbox or a, a GoParrot, because Toast is worth $4 billion. Why wouldn't they go out and just acquire one of these more kind of customizable online ordering platforms and say, now if you're a Toast customer, which they have thousands all over the country, you can now create the most beautiful online ordering solution because we have acquired a little company called
0: X. Curious. And- I love and I don't want to like have you pontificate too much on what's ahead in this space because honestly, it's crazy and stuff. And I think personally, something I'm looking ahead for 2021 is how regulators and local government are going to try and kind of crack down, I think. Whenever you see capitalized and space with opportunity like this that has big questions around data, transparency, food, makes it pretty an easy target. So I'm curious, really, will mayors of local cities or departments of health kind of take a lot closer look? I'm curious as 2021 or maybe the next couple of years unfold, what are some of the big, I don't know, maybe their predictions, questions you have, but just thoughts you're thinking about.
1: Yeah. I think what Travis is trying to solve for and what he thinks he can achieve, he thinks he can get hot food cooked and delivered to your door quicker and cheaper it would be for you or me to go to the grocery store, buy the stuff, bring it back to our home and cook it ourselves. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's kind of like with cloud kitchens, right? Travis Kalanick.
1: Travis Kalanick with cloud kitchens. That's like his big vision. I can get you this hot food in 10 minutes where it's going to cost you twice as much and twice as long to go to the store, get it yourself, come back and cook it in your home. Not unlike what Jeff Bezos said with Amazon, right? I'm going to make sure they can get things quicker and cheaper than if they had to go to the retail store themselves and get it. What I fear with this whole with this whole economy is that we're gonna commoditize we're gonna commoditize the experience of food delivery and, and of consuming food. And talking to my buddies in the restaurant industry that truly enjoy hosting and they enjoy cooking great food and providing a great experience, we're all nervous that if the entire country is focused on providing the cheapest product the quickest way possible. Are we gonna end up just with the next iteration of Burger King's and McDonald's and Wendy's, right? And so that's what I'm most nervous about looking into 2021. Maybe Mr. Beast Burgers has 400 locations and WowBow has 300 and these companies are going public and getting acquired and that's all great for headlines. But what does the food actually taste like when it gets to our door? And is this ever gonna really displace the experience of us going out and grabbing a beer and a burger in a real restaurant? And so as COVID hopefully moves into the later phases and the vaccine is more widespread throughout the states, my prediction is that people will return to experiential retail. There's a tremendous amount of pent-up demand for going out and eating locally. And as much as I'm excited about the virtual restaurant world, I surely hope that it in no way replaces going out to eat with friends and community-oriented hospitality experiences.
0: I love that point, And that's definitely, I think my biggest kind of question worry about how this whole space will affect cities and really how we experience them and life in cities. I know you're busy. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but is there anything about this conversation, anything I should have asked you or anything maybe popped up thinking back that you wish you would have had a little bit more time to talk about?
1: I want, I know everyone's saying it, but I want everyone to try the best they can to order directly from the restaurants. It's really difficult for restaurants to convert customers from Seamless, RubHub, etc. to their own native ordering platform. I tried to order Chinese food last night from a local spot in Williamsburg here. And I told my girlfriend, I said, I don't care how hard it is to order direct. I'm going online and I'm going to figure this out. And yes, I had to sign up for a new website and it was pretty clunky. But when all was said and done, I felt good about going directly to that restaurant and ordering the food without them having to pay the third party fees. So I'd say amongst all this technology and all this stuff going on, I think the big players will be fine because of the law of large numbers. We need to do our part as local citizens to call these businesses directly, order direct, even if it's a little more painful than just double clicking Apple Pay on seamless and do our best to really support these local businesses that have made our neighborhoods the reason why we live here today. So that's that's the big takeaway. It's all exciting. Virtual brands are great and cool and fun if you can approach it in a very direct to consumer way. But it's, in my opinion, they're not making the world a more enjoyable place because ultimately what I love to do is go out and eat and have fun with friends. And that's not what any of us are getting by being locked in a room talking over Zoom like this. And so we all have a responsibility to call restaurants, order directly, and try to keep them in business.
0: Honestly, I love that because it's something I think about. I'm terrible about that too. I order off of DoorDash, Uber Eats, and all of that. And honestly, you just gave me my big uh, 2021 resolution to definitely go a lot more direct. Where can people Keep up with your work, where people follow you, where I know you're pretty active on all the spots.
1: Yeah, so a lot of what I do, I keep under the radar just because I'll be the first to admit I don't really know what the future holds. And so I'm trying to plant some seeds and figure that out. I would say we're launching our own native ordering solution for city dumpling here in Q1. And -hmm. so definitely be on the lookout for that. And if you are in the New York area, try our dumplings. Hit me up. Let's, Let's enjoy some beers and dumplings together so we can talk more about the future. And don't be a stranger. I think collaboration is the only way that we figure this stuff out. When there's going to be a lot of restaurants that are suffering over the next 12 to 24 months. And I'm here to help them.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, I'll put Russ's kind of LinkedIn, social profile, City Dumpling, so you can order them um, all in like show notes. And they should be linked at to the top of the newsletter when I distribute. So if you want to connect with him, he's awesome. He knows more about restaurants than pretty much anyone I know. So <laughs> definitely the person to talk to if you're interested in this space. But Russ, thank you so much. Uh, this is awesome. I can't wait to bring you back for kind of the next big cycle of news and when I'm trying to figure out what's ahead.
1: Thank you for having me, man.
0: I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Russ and it provided you with some helpful context to understand how tech, food, and cities are all colliding in different ways right now. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.